and action. Hello out there to all our 34 Circe podcast. And cut. <laughs> Hello out there to all our 34 Circe Salon podcast listeners. I'm Don Sam Alden. And I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you so much for following this podcast and for your support for programs that explore the untold stories of female agency and adventure throughout history. This program is more than just something that we love doing, and we really deeply love it. It's also a mission for us. And we'd love for it to be a mission for you as well. So we've created an account on Patreon, a fundraising website, in order to help us fund the podcast and some other really great, really fun projects that we have planned. So if you're able, please go over to patreon.com slash 34 Circe and pledge your support. You can do a one-time donation or a monthly subscription. And any amount, even a dollar, helps fulfill the mission to help make matriarchy great again. So thank you for taking the time to listen to us in this exciting little commercial spot that we've given you. So <laughs> now on to the show. Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And there we go with our unusual intro that none of you listeners will hear, but that we found very strange and interesting. This is the 34 Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and... I am Dawn Sam Alden, and we are here with a return guest, the wonderful... Yes, Walter Penrose Jr. Hi, Walter. Here you are. Smattering of applause. We normally give Walter loud, raucous applause, but we're having technical difficulties today. So, Walter... You have returned to talk about a very a famous and beloved poet of the ancient world, Sappho. That's right. Yes. Why? Why is Sappho? Why now? What's what's your what what is called to you about Sappho right now? Right now, well, I mean, Sappho, I think, has been important for a really long time, right, uh, and continues to be. I think some people don't realize that a word lesbian and, you know, I think we're kind of in an LGBT moment at, at this point in time. Right? Um, right. The word lesbian derives from Sappho, who was from the island of Lesbos and was a lesbian with a capital L, as I normally ex- describe it to students and others. Um, and and she was there- Sapphic with a capital S, right? She was, I said Sapphic with a capital S. Uh, Sapphic with a capital S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, two words in English have come come from, from Sappho, lesbian, which is her place of origin, right? She was a lesbian with a capital L from Lesbos. And uh, sapphic, which means something similar to, to lesbian, right? Um, right? An adjective and is related to Sappho because she wrote about her love for other women. And she's the earliest known poet um, that we have who, you know, who did so. There may have been others, but, but they're lost. Is, is it controversial? Because in, in doing and in looking into her a little more before we uh, got together, I saw that there has over the centuries been dispute about her orientation. Is it really in dispute? Is it just that's a matter of the different times and places when people were looking into her? What what do we know about her actual personal life, Those her actual personal orientation? Well, I think a lot of people tried to sort of, you know, wash away her homoeroticism. And I use the term homoeroticism instead of lesbianism or homosexuality, just because, you know, those kinds of terms are really stuff that has come come to us from sort of modern, uh, you know, psychology, right? Starting in sort of the late 19th century. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think if you look closely at the little bits of poetry that we have, it's hard to deny that there's something homoerotic there, right? 
her mm-hmm. love for women is 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 and, and even the idea that she had some sort of erotic encounter with another woman is kind of clear from from some of the poetry that I'll share today. And of course, you know, in the Middle Ages in the West, they kind of lost knowledge of Sappho. And so they also wanted to use her. Christine de Pizan really is the person who started something called the Carrel de Femme, the woman's question, right? And what Christine de Pizan tried to do out of this intense sea of misogyny was to rehabilitate womanhood. Right. You know, and she just felt that, you know, she describes in in her book, The City of Ladies, where she's having a dream. Right. And, and she's, you know, well, she's read all these horrible, horrible, you know, misogynist texts. And, you know, she just decides to take a nap because she's so depressed and she has a dream. And these three uh, personifications come to her ladies, reason, rectitude and justice. And they tell her, oh, you know, Christine, don't be so upset. Right. We're going to help you build a city of ladies. And one of the people that she puts into that city of ladies is Sappho, right? And But she doesn't mention Sappho's homoeroticism, even though she clearly knows about it from Boccaccio, who's one of her sources. And similarly, she puts Medea in her city of ladies, which is, a, you know, a, a city of virtuous and capable women. And, you know, of course, she never mentions the fact that Medea murdered all of her children, right? Um, and so... Well, a little fact you might want to point out, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, in any event, um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, so so in terms of her homoeroticism, I do think that, yes, I mean, you know, she writes about it. Um, you know, there, there are different theories that have been passed down to us. Her poetry might have been uh, purchased by other people, right? She may have written poetry for other people to perform. Um, but, you know, she talks about her own daughter in the poetry and and we have some later testimonia that kind of link some of the names of her beloveds to the poems, right? So I think that, in my opinion, I just think people really, A, like Christine de Pizan, really wanted to use Sappho in a time when, you know, homosexuality, if we dare use that word, that's kind of a, anachronistic, right? Pushing it back in time. But, but you know, homoeroticism, any that, you know, what was the love that dared not speak its name? Right. You know, that's how it's some earlier medieval texts. And um, and so, you know, and also Christine really wanted to, you know, prevent women as virtuous. Right. Uh, not not prevent present women as virtuous. Right. So uh, but then when we go on, you know, into the, you know, Victorian era, we find some other people who really sort of, you know, they want to say, oh, no, 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 this isn't true. Right. Um, and even modern scholars will sometimes say, okay, well, you know, this poem was, a, you know, performed at a wedding, right? And then I'll sort of uh, maybe talk about that a little bit later. Um, and, you know, talks about the separation of a woman from, from Sappho and, you know, the sort of loss over that. And it's similar to some poems that have been performed in modern Greek, you know, wedding contexts, right? And that may well be, there may be some crossover there, but I do think that, you know, Sappho's talking about, you know, uh, you know, she and another woman, you know, kind of anointing one another with oil and, you know, it's sort of, you know, no holy spot left untouched. Um, you know, whether it's her own homoeroticism or, or something she's presenting to others, kind of, I think it, it's certainly... I'm going to say it's both, right? And kind okay. of stick to my okay. guns there. Okay, hold on just a moment. So we are back after a slight technical break, but uh, Walter, I wanted to come back to you and just ask you a couple of questions just to follow up on what you were explaining and describing about uh, Sappho. So first, you mentioned a very interesting uh, figure in history, Christina Pizan. Could you say a little bit more about her for the listeners so they have some context for her? And then I want to ask you a couple of things, too, about um, what you just said in terms of Sappho uh, and the weddings. Okay, sure. I'd be happy to. Christine de Pizan lived from 1364 to 1430. She was from Italy, right? Um, De Pizan means, you know, from Pisa. And uh, she came with her father to France as a young woman and was married to a Frenchman, Etienne du Castel, um, who died in 1389, leaving her, her father had died before that from the plague, leaving her with a lawsuit to try and, you know, claim what of his estate she could get, and a mother and three children to support. 
And so oh she goodness. managed to, uh, you know, associate herself with, with the royal family and to become a court writer. And she was a prolific author. Some call her the first woman of letters in Europe. Um, and uh, though we don't want to leave Sappho out, but Sappho did write poetry, right? Um, and so, but of course, you know, she would have had a relationship to someone like Sappho in terms of her own, you know, writing abilities and, and her own uh, profession. And so she became quite quite famous and quite well known. And then she was sort of ignored in later times, right? Even though she had produced quite a number of texts, but um, this text, The City of Ladies that she wrote, um, you know, is a, it's a metaphorical city of ladies in which she populates this city with uh, women of various sorts, and, and many of them are from antiquity. So that's what drew me to the text. And that's really, I took a course on medieval gender and sexuality when I was a graduate student. And that's kind of how I got drawn into the idea of Sappho really was, and, and also I'd taken a course on, on, um, on women uh, in antiquity and, and we'd read Sappho in the ancient Greek. So sort of those two courses really got me interested in, in both Sappho and Christine de Pizan. Very, yeah. Is, I think they're, sorry. The City please. of Ladies still available? Like, is that something that you could go to your uh, library and check out? Or is it is it sure. one of those things that, oh, great. Oh, There's wonderful. a very nice uh, translation in the Penguin um, that you can pick up and read. And uh, it's it's a really enlightening text. Um, and, she, you know, she wrote a lot of other texts. Of course, you know, some call her sort of, you know, the first feminist. Um and others, you know, kind of are like, well, she was a product of her time, but, you know, and some would say that she's a proto-feminist. But however you want to think about that, right, and there's some debate over that, she really sort of, you know, uh, you know, was the first to really challenge all of these misogynist authors who'd been so important in the Middle Ages and, you know, and had really channeled other really misogynist authors from antiquity, like Aristotle and Ovid. Right, um, Both right, of whom had yeah. things to say about Sappho that uh, we might get to. Uh, but, you know, um, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I think what Aristotle says, it's something like, well, Sappho was famous even though she was a woman. Um, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know? and, and, you, and I'm just wow. gonna, I'm just going to add a, a quick little thought here. Whenever we say someone, uh, a woman was the first at something, I always want to add the little parentheses after that we know of. Yes. Because heaven true. knows how many women may have said the same thing um, and either had their writings burned, weren't able to write them down, whatever. So she is the first or, or that we know themselves. of or that we still have evidence for yes or were burned themselves for that yeah. matter not just yes, the writings yes. could be burned but so could yes that. it's a really good point on yeah I, I guilty of making an argument from silence there right you know yeah yeah very <laughs> yeah. excellent point there yeah um i totally agree so could can we just go back to what you were saying about the wedding so i i'm sorry if if i kind of mispassed as the tech stuff was kind of flaring up at that moment so the wedding, so th there are particular poems that were often used at weddings that Sappho had written? Yeah, I mean, we, we think so, right? Um, what, what happens is, I'll, I'll pull one of the poems out and maybe read it to you here. Um, and, you know, it is a poem that's about, um, you know, it's about parting, really. And... Mm -hmm. um, so some modern scholars have looked at, at this. It's about a young woman parting. Um, Sappho was, we think, uh, an aristocrat, right? She was of the wealthy mm -hmm. class. We learned that from some later testimonia about her. Um, her husband was a very wealthy merchant, we're told. She was married, and she had a daughter named Kleis. Um, mm -hmm. Everything about her is controversial, right? Because all of this comes from sort of later, uh, you know, uh, information um but uh you know but but i think it's it's fair to say that she probably was married and had this daughter named kleiss um and because, she uh, stayed... some, some said that the daughter that the kleiss could have been a, a lover right because that was that's the controversy there that's correct that, that is the controversy could have been her beloved her mother's name was also kleiss though and when we study ancient greek history um you know Granddaughters are, are usually named after the grandmother. 
And okay. so this idea of skipping a generation and naming it fits into a sort of broader context of what we know about the ancient Greeks. So it's possible, you know, anything's possible, yeah, because the word pice is what's used um, of, of the daughter, right? And that could mean a child, but it could also mean uh, a beloved, usually more in a sort of male homoerotic relationship, though, is where we find that term being used that way. But, but you know, we know so little about women, right? We have so little left that right, it's possible. Right. Yeah, it's possible either way. Um, and okay. so, you know, this idea is that, you know, having kind of compared this to later Greek anthropology, where there's this sort of wailing that goes on when, you know, so, so let me just explain a little bit about Greek marriage customs, because I think that's important here. So yes. when a woman was married, she left the home of her family, she went with her husband, and she would live with his family. And sometimes that might be in the same village. Uh, but often for these aristocratic women, um, you know, on an island like Lesbos, they would be married to some important aristocrat across the sea in Lydia, and they would never come back. Um, mm. But regardless of, of what that situation would have been, where the young bride was going, um, in modern Greece, you know, there are these sort of cultural activities that have, you know, rituals that have come down through the ages in where, uh, you know, um, there's a sort of moaning that the, the women of the house do, right, you know, and a bemoaning and, and uh, you know, poetry that could accompany that or singing. And, uh, of course, all of, most or all of Sappho's poetry would have been sung to a lyre. That's why we call it lyric poetry. A lyre was a stringed instrument. And so it would have been performed. Um, that, I think, makes some sense. But um, let me read to you... Um, number 14, and I'm reading these from a translation uh, of Diane J. Rayer, which I've looked at closely and really closely approximates the Greek. In fact, um, Diane Rayer gave a, a lecture once uh, at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York, uh, where I was a student at the City University of New York. She said that she does translate very literally, so that's why I'm, I'm using her translations, but also wanted to use those just in case our readers want to you know, pick up the book. It's Sappho's Liar, Archaic Lyric and Women Poets of Ancient Greece, translated by Diane J. Rayer. How nice. is the Diane's last name spelled? Because I, I'd Rayer. like to look at that. R-A-Y-O-R. Okay, thank you. Great. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. And so this is number 14. I, I simply wish to die. Weeping, she left me and said this too. We've suffered terribly. Sappho, I leave you against my will. I answered, go happily and remember me. You know how we cared for you. If not, let me remind you the lovely times we shared. Many crowns of violets, roses, and crocuses. Together you set before me, and many scented wreaths made from blossoms around your soft throat. With pure, sweet oil you anointed me, and on a soft, gentle bed you quenched your desire. No holy sight we left uncovered. No grove dance, sound. Now, I've read that as though it all flowed together. There are a number of lacunae in that, and a lacuna is uh, a Latin word that means a gap, and it's where the papyrus has been eaten by a worm, probably, right? right. Um, right. And many of these poems were recovered from papyri found at a place called Oxyrhynchus, and so um, in any event, in Egypt, um, but but this one does, it, it it probably is in the context of a young woman being married off against her will. Um, and, you know, she uses that term, Sappho, I leave you against my will. Um, and so I do think there is some context of marriage here, right? Um, but also, you know, Sappho is here, right, being referred to by the mm -hmm. other woman. Um, and also, you know, in terms of the homoeroticism, you know, it says... Uh, you know, uh, right, that, that, you know, she set before me, right, many scented wreaths made from blossoms, and around your soft throat with pure sweet oil you anointed me, and on a soft, gentle bed you quenched your desire. So this is, I think, probably the most specifically homoerotic passage in Sappho, and I think it's important. There are other poems that, you know, where she talks about Hymen, who is the god of marriage, right? Um, right? And so, you know, the marriage context is definitely there, right? But I think this one 
is personal. That's how I interpret it. And I think sometimes people just are uncomfortable with homoeroticism and, and they don't really want it to be there. But, you know, there's such a long tradition of people recognizing this. And when we look at the Romans or, you know, even the, uh, the later Greeks, they talk about her homoeroticism. In fact, one in the Oxyrhynchus Papyrus, there's a biography of Sappho and, right, um, and it says she's been accused by some of being irregular in her ways and a woman lover. So this, this is from the second, early third century AD, but they still had her poetry then. Are they reading a lot into it? Maybe, but I just, I, I'm a believer that, yes, yeah, Sappho did have affections for other women. And, you know, um, should we call her a, a lesbian, meaning, you know, that was her only, you know, desire her all of her you know erotic attractions were to women um we don't know right she was married she you know had this daughter as far as we know named Clice. um the daughter's also mentioned here in, in this uh you know she had a daughter Clice, named after her own mother right um, right right and so um yeah, I well, think and, that and also you know so much of what we know about her is uh, is secondhand, right? Because yes. we have very few of her actual poems remain, even though she was quite prolific and wrote a lot, very few original source, you know, we have very, very little original source material for her. We have much more secondary source material where, um, you know, people who had their own agendas were writing about her and her works. And that um, is quite true. Yeah. Yeah, and you know she was from Lesbos, which was a city-state that had very, very uh, a lot more freedom and status for women than did the cities, you know, the city-states of Athens and and Sparta and the places where we have most of the extant material from. Um, you know, they would have looked at the city-state of Lesbos, probably thinking, you know, these crazy women in Lesbos are running around having all this, you know, rights, and they're allowed to write, and they're allowed to perform, and what the heck, you know. So we have to take into account that, you know, the source material that we have is already biased against her and her way of life, and, uh, you know, that they probably would have leveled a bunch of, of uh, you know, sort of mutterings and insults against her just because of that alone. That's very true, especially with Athens, especially with Athens. Yes, I would agree there. Yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. want to also on that, that note. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. sorry. I'm not using that as an argument that she was or was not a lover of women. Um, you know, I, 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 I would agree with you, Walter, that it seems to me that there's some, you know, some pretty straightforward indication in the text that she loved women and, you know, that wouldn't have made any difference for her getting married and having children because she would have expected, been expected to do that regardless of her sexual proclivities. So, um, And that's yeah. quite true. That was the Greek way, right? Whether you were a man or right. a woman, right? You know, you're expected to, you know, you could have these kind of homoerotic affairs and no one really seemed to care that much. Um, although, you know, in this later text, which is written in Greek, you know, he she's been accused by some of being irregular in her ways, right? So, well, again, you know, what the Athenians thought may have been different. Um, in Sparta, you mentioned Sparta briefly. In Sparta, we are told yeah. by Plutarch that women did take lovers, right? And there was an age difference between them, just like with, with men. Um, right. that, you know, an older woman would take a, a younger woman lover. And, you know, but it's like one line in a, in a text that, you know, we'd like to know a lot more about. Um, but right. unfortunately, we yeah. don't. Yeah. Well, I wanted to just see with on those notes, just a few gaps just for the listener to fill in, because I wanted to ask you about that. First, you'd mentioned the papyrus and the bio. So maybe a little bit about what we do have about her bio from the ancient world, what we have in terms of uh, that, what we still received. And then the gaps, too, that you talked about, you know, the gaps in her poems, because this is a, a general question. I mentioned this to Dawn. It's a question that plagues me a lot, which is, you know, we've lost so much of the works of ancient antiquity. Uh, how is really one of the questions and where could we look for them? But more specific to, to Sappho in this case, how much of her work do we still have? How much was there? And what significant works do we think are missing? So his, her bio, 
her significant gaps. And I think maybe one thing would also, I'm curious about and for the listener, what defines a lyric poem versus uh, an epic form, different other formats? What defines something that is a lyric poem specifically in ancient Greece? Because okay, isn't well, she credited? I'm sorry, sorry go ahead, isn't she credited with inventing the lyric form of poetry? She is credited with inventing the lyric I, right? Um, which is not necessarily lyric poetry in and of itself, but her lyric poetry was very innovative. Um, so the lyric I was to write um, poetry, right, in, you know, um, in the viewpoint of a specific person, right? Um, and that's in contrast to the earlier epic poets, Homer and Hesiod, who presented themselves as more as conduits of divine inspiration. Um, and, you know, she certainly was innovative. Um, you know, she had, an, there was another lyric poet writing around the same time as her, Alcaeus, and I believe that Terpander, right? Um, you know, there was, there was a, a tradition of, 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 poetry and singing to the lyre on um, Lesbos, right? And so I, I don't think she was the first to actually invent it, but she is credited with inventing this lyric eye, right? Um, and so the poetry explores, you know, emotions and, you know, jealousy, love, um, personal kinds of things. And that's what lyric poetry does. So as opposed to epic poetry, um, which is much longer, right? thousands of lines. Lyric poems are usually about 200 or so lines or less. They were sung mm -hmm. to a lyre, right? Um, Homer. Is, is there and, a meter difference? Is there a difference in terms of the, you know how in English, of course, we have the different kinds of poems and depending on the meter and depending on the structure that changes. So was it that not the case that is it, was it subject matter more that makes the difference? And they were all uh, it's uh, both. I think there are different okay. meters, right, that are used for lyric poetry. And okay. the subject matter is also different. So, so when you think about the subject matter of, of Homer, for example, you know, Homer writes about this heroic past, right? Um, it's about, you know, um, right, gods and goddesses, which Sappho also does, does bring in, right? Um, but, you know, her poetry seems to be more about the world immediately surrounding her. And that's a big difference, right? And it's shorter. Um, and um, so, uh, and I'm hoping I'm going to remember all of your questions now, but you oh, might- Oh, no worries. That's no worries. Right. Yeah, so, sorry, so there, I, derailed, there were, there were gaps I derailed all Sean's questions. That, so. No, 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 no worries. You know, this, this is such a great I, journey we're taking. So it's no worries. I think uh, I can- What the gaps? The gaps. Okay. Um, so the gaps in, in her poetry- so we have, you know, mostly fragments of her poetry. We have only one complete poem that we know of. Um, and that is an ode to Aphrodite. And that is number one in um, Diane Rayer's translation. Um, and which I'll, I'd like to read that to you later. But, um, but, but let me just talk a little bit about the, the loss of her poetry. So um, she originally had written nine books of poetry. Now, a book meaning, um, you know, a papyrus scroll, right? So it might not be quite as large as a book today, uh, but still there was quite a lot. And now we just have, you know, many of her poems, we only have one word left. And um, so, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember exactly what, um, how much we would have had, right? Um, but, you know, uh, Almost all of it's gone, right? I think would be the way oh to gosh. to just you know put it into simple terms, right? Uh, and uh, so you know the um, bits that we have left are are hard to you know sort of um, grasp a you know to sort of go back to one of the other questions, right? You know this idea of, of what can we tell about her life, right? Um, and so, you know, I think what we know about her life, the best source, obviously, is the poetry, right? And she does mention her brothers. Um, she has a particularly difficult relationship with one of them who goes to Egypt and spends all of his money on a courtesan, um, and she's not too happy with him. Um, and we continue to find new <laughs> poems about her, right? 
There is a biographical tradition that she fell in love with a fairy man named Theon, and that because he did not return her love, she threw herself off of a cliff and killed herself. Um, and, you know, while that's remotely possible, I suppose that comes up really late in a poem of Ovid, who was, you know, a Roman. The Romans were notoriously homophobic when it came particularly to female homoeroticism. And, um, and one of the more recent poems that have been found in, in, in this century, in fact, is a poem in which Sasso, you know, sort of bemoans her old age and her gray hair. And mm. so it kind of, you know, and unless she wrote this for somebody else, again, there's always that worry, right? Yeah. Um, but, but you know, the, I don't um, think so. The, yeah, isn't the reference to her throwing her off of a cliff from, they're referring to the story that was actually in a comedic play written by yes. somebody else. So it's very possible that it was, a, you know, that the whole story was a satire and that someone is actually taking it as truth. Yeah, that's true. I, I am citing Ovid here, right? Um, and uh, because a lot of the, you know, comedies are very fragmentary and we don't we don't have them. Right. But yes, we right. do believe that that story may have come from, from an earlier sort of tradition. Yeah, there were a number of poet poet poems, excuse me, there were a number of plays that were performed in Athens, six that we know of, that were about Sappho. Um, and we just don't have a lot of those plays left, but we have enough, we have some bits and pieces and other authors who wrote about them to understand that, you know, in these plays, she's presented as a courtesan. And uh, so, you know, this is not very flattering, right? Um, right. Uh, you, when we're talking about this aristocratic woman who was this, you know, greatest poet of all time, right? You know, and, and you know, she was called the 10th Muse. Uh, she was called, the, you know, the female Homer, right? Um, right. And so, you know, and she was included among the nine best lyric poets known um, much later in the Hellenistic period, you know, when they built the library at Alexandria, the scholars there in the museum, right? The museum is really a place of, of the muses, right? Um, oh, from the Greek term museum. Yeah, I never made that. I never made that connection. Oh my goodness! Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so you know, and uh, and but um, Sappho is included. You know, they made lists of the nine best authors in each category, right? So tragedy, mm. comedy. Um, you know, and unfortunately, because the library was burned down a number of times, right? This, a lot of this stuff has not survived. But I think what has survived was in there, probably, right? Because then it got copied over and copied over. And it, it was kind of, right. it was a canonization, right? They made their canon of the best ancient uh, Greek literature. And that's what got copied over and over again. And it's a shame that Sappho doesn't survive in, in more entirety. Right. Um but, you know, and there are a number of reasons given for perhaps why uh, her poetry didn't survive. Um, first of all, there's some legends that are really late that it was burned. Uh, it was burned by Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, I love his name, right? You know, it's, it is N-A-Z-I, right? right? Um, A-N-Z-S-S, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus burned her poetry, and that would have been around 380 AD. And he also, according to this, you know, this text is preserved by uh, a man named uh, Cardon, right? And this is really late, like sometime at 1538 or afterwards, who knows what his sources were and or where right. he got this right. from, something that's now lost to us. That's hard to say. Um, but, you know, in the context, 380 is when uh, Christianity was made the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so, um, you know, that they would have burned pagan work seems possible at this time, right? Um, but, you know, others have said, argued, no, 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 this is not what happened. And, um, uh, you know, that her poetry was just sort of lost through the vicissitudes of time, that the Aeolic dialect, which she wrote in, was kind of strange and foreign to, you know, people of later antiquity who really focused on Attic Greek, the Greek from Athens. And right, right. Um, this is another argument made. Um, Joan Dijon, um, who's written a book called Fictions of Sappho, argues that it's because of her homoeroticism. And, you know, when you look at some of the other texts that we have that kind of talk about Sappho, um, you know, one of them is by a man named Tatian. 
who was a Christian. And I'm going to see if I can pull this up right now and read it to you. Yes, here it is, right? Um, so Tatian asserted in uh, circa 180 CE that Sappho was a, quote, courtesan, end quote, probably relying on that earlier tradition from Attic comedy, as well as a, quote, love-mad, wanton woman who even sings about her own licentiousness, end quote. Now, this is the kind of, you know, I mean, we're in this very... How dare she? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, you know... This is even worse than Aristotle. I hate to say it, right? You know, because yeah. usually Aristotle's about the worst when it comes to any of this. Yeah. He's, he's sort of the, the, the heavyweight champion of the side. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, but I love this. So, you know, it's just the fact that a woman would write about sexuality. Now, there's a lot of male homoerotic poetry that has survived. So the argument I formulated when I wrote on this topic, I published an article in the journal of Lesbian Studies um, called Sappho's Shifting Fortunes from Antiquity to the Early Renaissance. And that's something you can look up on the internet. It's an open access nice. journal. Um, good. And, uh, and so my thought was, well, I just think, you know, any woman who was writing about her sexuality, this was just not something that they wanted to hear about at this time, right? And so those right. church authorities right. especially. Um, and so, you know, uh, and so that's, that's kind of, you know, that's sort of one, one way that I've thought it through, but, you know, we don't know. There are other scholars who have argued, well, hey, you know, they didn't burn the works of the pagans, right? They didn't, they, they kept them, they copied them over, right? But I think that's mm. later. When we're in this early period, like around 380 in the fourth century AD, when Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, I think what's happening is that, you know, pagan gods are called demons, right? Now, the right. term demon has a Greek, um, you know, a pagan understanding. In, in a pagan understanding, the term daimon, right, which is where we get our word demon from, and really just it's right. pronouncing the same word a different way. Um, daimon, right, is, um, that was a spirit who kind of, mediated between humans and, and the Olympian gods, right? Mm. Um, but what they did is they called all of these, you know, gods, whether they were demons or the Olympian gods, you know, they called them demons, right? In the sense of, you know, they were Satan, you know, satanic creatures, right? And right. devils, right? And this is, you know, how... So I think earlier on, it's possible that some of it could have been burned. Um, but, you know, they're legends, so it's hard to know. And... and uh, as one professor once said to me when I was a student, you know, this is what ancient historians do, Walter. They just argue with each other because, you know, they're trying to fill in the blanks about what no one knows. So and then they just hate each other for years. <laughs> you know? now, now, what that makes me think of, Walter, I've always, you know, this, again, this is the, an obsession I have, which is these lost works. So is there a sort of, and this is a little bit off, but just well, just for a little briefly, if you, if you wouldn't mind, is there any consensus of where, we might be able to recover some of the lost works. For example, uh, my friend Gary, who's been on a, a different podcast and on this podcast who's an archaeologist, talks about the at Herculaneum that there is possibly a lost library where they might have that had buried under where there might be some scrolls or work. Is there any talk in scholarship of where this sort of great quest or grail could be for some of the lost works that would have been? Usually uh, stuff is found in Egypt because that's where the papyri survive. And so, you know, all we really had were bits and pieces of Sappho that were quoted by others up until the 19th century when they made this discovery at Oxyrhynchus and this Oxyrhynchus, you know, uh, papyri um, cache, if you will, right? Um, papyri being the plural of papyrus, and, you know, was found. And in there, you know, uh, were these bits and pieces of Sappho. And yeah, bits and pieces keep coming up and usually they're found in Egypt. Now, Herculaneum, uh, you know, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, they're trying still to read those papyri that were, you know, sort of charred, really charred, right? And um, sort of, you know, carbonized. And so, you know, if they can read those, they might find something in there that's possible, you know, that Sappho certainly was popular among the Romans and they all tried to imitate her, Catullus, Ovid, um, you know, some of the 
more famous Roman poets, uh, you know, they imitated Sappho and that was sort of a, a sport, if you will, um, you know, and, and, you know, Ovid said that, oh, you know, he, you know, he actually wrote in Sappho's voice. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, when, when speaking of Phaon, right, you know, and, and she says, you know, oh, you, you know, lesbian women cease coming to my kithara, right, you know, my, my, my stringed instrument, right, because, you know, you have made me infamous, right? Oh, um, God. And, you know, Sappho never said this, right? You know, uh, but some right, people right. You know, in the Middle Ages even thought this was a, an authentic Sappho poem. Um, but anyway, wow. the point being, you know, that's a possibility at Herculaneum. And I, I saw those scrolls when I went to Naples. And that was fascinating. Oh. Really oh, fascinating. Wow. And they actually may have brought one or two of them, I think, to the Getty because they had a an exhibition they, there. They did. I, I went to that actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did too. Um, and so uh, the Getty Villa, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the hope and, and, you know, two finds have been made in the century, one in 2004, one in 2014. And so, you know, we have the old age poem, right. That I mentioned earlier. And then also the right. brothers poem in which, so, you know, and, and, and I'm going to tie this all back to one of your original questions, which was about Sappho's biography. Um, so, you know, one of the things we do know, right, from these later testimonia, right, we're told, and let me, let me find what I did with them. Here they are, right? Okay, so we're told in this Oxyrhynchus papyrus, um, you know, from the... Um, early third or late second century, I'm sorry, late second century, early third century AD, um, that, you know, she had three brothers, Arigios, Laricos, and Caraxos. Um, and prior to this time, the name of only one of them had been found in a poem, but the brother's poem recently found in Egypt actually had the names of two of them in it. And so some of these little, you know, bits and pieces of this biography are confirmed by her own poetry, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I, you know, I, I can tend to be an antiquarian, right? Meaning I, you know, I, I, I want to believe what the texts are telling us. Um, and <laughs> so, you know, not as sort of a postmodern dismissus, uh, right? Um, right? But, you know, right. and this is the same uh, text that tells us she had a daughter named Kleiss, right? So, yeah, but, but that would be the place to find them would be probably Egypt, but, you know, who knows in Herculaneum? That's another possibility if we can ever read those, you know, and really figure mm. out what they say. And in the they, brothers' poem that, that they found, were the two so two of the three brothers were mentioned. Which which two brothers were they? Uh, I believe it was Laricos and Caraxos. And was that the what were one of those two the brothers who ran off of the courtesan? Caraxos, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just I was curious as to whether she left him out and mentioned the other two brothers. So uh, <laughs> No, no. no she, um, <laughs> oh I, Caraxos. He's up to yeah, his own again. <laughs> you know, and, and some of what she's mentioning with him, she has issues with him, right? So, you know, he comes up in her poetry. You know, I used to write poetry when I was younger and I, you know, I once sort of got out the old poems and I thought oh my gosh, why didn't I just kill myself, right? Um, but, you know, this is how I worked through whatever, you know, sort of grief of youth I was going through, right? You know, unrequited right. love or whatever it was, right? And right. so, um, you know, and I think, you know, Sappho does that too, you know, she's working through her emotions in this poetry. And, and that's one of the other reasons that I think it's, it is personal, right? I, because I think it's just in my own experience as a poet, right? I, right. you know... Um, I'm a bit like Rambo. I hate to compare myself to him, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, I published one poem in the Student English Association Journal, right? But anyway, um, but you know, I really stopped writing after you know I was about 21 or 22. I you know I stopped writing poetry anyway. I, I eventually went to writing you know uh, more academic things. So I do still write, obviously, right. but. Um, as a oh, poet. yeah, yeah. We definitely go through, you know, all of us go through that that teenage period where we, we just can't, you know, we're feeling so much and so intensely that we, we just have to, you know, 
we have to, it, it leaks out of us in some way, whether that's, you know, writing love songs or writing poetry or, or who knows what, but, um, but yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I went through my own poetess stage where I wrote about how, you know, how, how, how much I, I pine after, you know, the various people that I had crushes on, but. Um, well, now now but, I feel bad because I'm still in that stage. So, <laughs> yes. so well, I, I'm still writing poems like that. So yeah. Don, maybe we need to get out more. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Liz, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Never mind COVID, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lockdown's great for writing. Yeah, that brings me to a go. question. Was, actually, yeah. is do we know how? Like, do you, do we know? Uh, what age she was when she started writing poetry? Like, did she, did she start writing poetry when she was going through those emotional teenage years or, or was this a later thing? Do we have any idea? You know, it's hard to put together her chronology exactly, but you know, scholars, you know, assert that she was probably born around 630 BCE and died around 570. And we are told uh, by Eusebius, who wrote something called the, um, uh, where did it go? He, Eusebius wrote sort of a chronology, right? Where he sort of laid out a lot of ancient Greek history in, in, in terms mm. of time. And mm-hmm. he asserts that she wrote during the 45th Olympiad you know, not that she wrote that she became famous by the 45th uh, Olympiad, which is around 600 BC. So at the age of 30, if this is correct, and again, this is, you know, a thousand years later, this is a late source, but if it's correct, and, you know, they had a whole lot of stuff at their disposal that we don't have. That's the thing we always have to take into consideration. Sure, this is really late, right? It survived. The earlier stuff didn't. That's often what happens. But mm-hmm. um, but we really have to think about the fact that, um, you know, he would have had, you know, a, a much larger body of texts available to his disposal. And so the fact that Sappho became famous during her own lifetime is really interesting. So if she's about 30 at that point or less, because, um, you know, we're told that she was active around the same time as, as another uh, poet, Alcaeus, right? And, you know... And that was like, I think around mm, some, something like, you know, trying to remember exactly right, but, but, you know, uh, 520, right? If that's correct. Mm. Anyway, um, some of these dates are kind of getting jingled up in my, in my head, but, um, but I think so. Yes. I think that she could have been writing when she was young and also she may not have been, you know, a Rambo type, right? She may, you know, she's Sappho and, right. and she continued to write into old age. So, right. Um, right. and I know friends who are poets and I think they write very personal things, you know, and, and just, you know, I didn't kind of keep up with it, but I think that other poets do. Right. And so yeah. that I think is um, of interest, right. In any event. So yeah, that was a long winded answer to your question. We don't know for sure, right, when she was writing, sure. but there right. seems to right. be a full spectrum from, you know, these, you know, sort of lost loves, right, probably more in youth, all the way down to her gray hair and her knee, her knee hurts, right, which <laughs> I can relate I can to. Totally, I can totally years. relate. Absolutely. Yes. So, so, Walter, she's writing at an, an, an interesting time in Greek history, too, then, it sounds like. It's, she's, not, she's not in the golden, we're not in the era of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, but we're also not in the era of the Iliad. She's in between. She's just after Homer, right? So she's in, what, what, was, what was the Greek world like at that moment? Well, this uh, is what we call like, the Archaic Period. You know, sort of Homer around 750 or so BC is really when the archaic period begins. Um, you know, what, what we see happening is the alphabet's been reintroduced into Greece. We don't yet have, you know, the genre of history with Herodotus. Herodotus is called the father of history. There were earlier um, historians that we know of, Xanthus of Lydia, Lydia, excuse me, whom Herodotus mentions. 
But, you know, around 600, really what, you know, the kind of evidence we have from that period is this poetry, right? This is a lot of what we have. It's just a lot of poems. And, and um, Sappho clearly was an aristocrat. And this was a time of tyrants, right, that would rise up and sort of, you know, take control. And, you know, and the way the ancient Greeks defined a tyrant was not a horrible ruler necessarily, although um, that could be the case. Uh, but it was someone who seized power, right, um, mm. as opposed to a king, uh, a Basileos, who had, you know, inherited the throne. And so around, uh, uh, right around the same time that she becomes famous, according to Eusebius, she's exiled from Lesbos. And so uh, there's a lot of political turmoil that's going on. And um, so is her contemporary, Alcaeus, right? He's also exiled, or so we're told. And mm. it is, she went to Sicily, we know that, right? Um, some of the people exiled were allowed to return later. Um, so there was a lot of political up and down. Um, what we do know from archaeology is that, you know, by this point in time, the upper class was living well. You know, when the ancient Mycenaean world collapsed, you know, the sort of Bronze Age civilizations of much of the Eastern Mediterranean collapsed in, you know, say, 1211, between 1200 and 1100 uh, BC. Greece entered a period of what's called the Dark Age, meaning there was no writing, but it's also a time when grave goods are very simple. We don't see a lot mm. of differentiation in terms of class. And then around the beginning of the Archaic period, we really start to see that shift. You know, we see really incredible grave goods, gold and, you know, imported things, ostrich egg in one burial that I can think of. And all this stuff mm. is imported, you know, um, and so, and we, what we're told about, um, right, Caroxus, her brother in, in this biography, the eldest, um, who sailed to Egypt and associated with a courtesan, right, we're also told in, um, you know, but, but he, probably was a trader, right? You know, why Why is he sailing to Egypt, right? You know, it's probably for trade. We know the Greeks traded heavily with the Egyptians. And also we're told that her husband, and this is another interesting story, her husband's name was Kerkulos. And we're told in a much later, later um, testimonium, right, a biography from the, what's called the Suidae Lexicon, right, written by a man named Suidas, right? Um, and so, it's usually called the Suda by uh, classicists. But anyway, um, we're told she was married to a very wealthy man called Kirkulus, who traded from Andros, and she had a daughter by him called Kleis, right? And so, um, you know, that her husband is described as very wealthy kind of makes sense. Sappho, I mean, A, knew how to read and write. You know, a peasant woman wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been literate. B, she had time to write, you know. Um, and, right. you know, a, a woman of the lower class would have been busy scrubbing and, you know, working the harvest, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, I, so I think it's, it's a world on Lesbos of, of trade and business and probably there's a good life to be had for people of this class, right? For the people in the lower class, you know, probably not, not so much. Right, right. And, and also, as we mentioned before, the fact that, um, the Lesbos city-state was um, allowed a lot more freedoms to women than some of the other city-states at that time. So she also had that, you know, the luck of being born in the right place going for her. Yes, that's true. The right place in the right time. Because I think also, you know, um, in, in a place like Athens, women may have had a little more freedom earlier. This is a theory, though, not, not truth, okay. you know not the gospel truth, I should say, it's a theory that some have developed, right? And democracy, as it developed, really, you know, starting in the sixth century, which is, you know, it, it's kind of beginning at that time, but really in 510 is when democracy really takes hold in Athens. And democracy, some scholars think, was really the worst thing that could have happened to women because, um, you know, and right. interesting, right? But, um, but, you know, in an aristocratic world, 
women have more say so, right? You know, it's a class-based world, whereas in democracy, right, even those who are of the landed property class, right, that, you know, only men are citizens and only men have a voice in Athens. But but I, there is a big ethnic difference there as well. So, you know, I think you're right to yeah. point that out. Yeah, yeah. Do you, Interesting. Uh, what about this this hymn to Aphrodite? Do you want to share oh, that? Oh, yeah. Let me read that to you. This is... Um, a couple of, of things about this that are that are of interest, but let me let me read it first. And the poem goes as this. This is number one in Diane Rayer's collection, right? Um, and I think usually because it is the most complete, is considered number one. Although some of the Greek collections have different numbers, but um, on the throne of many hues, immortal Aphrodite, child of Zeus, weaving wiles, I beg you not to subdue my spirit, queen with pain or sorrow. But come, if ever before, having heard my voice from far away, you listened, and leaving your father's golden home, you came in your chariot yoked with swift, lovely sparrows, bringing you over the dark earth, thick feathered wings swirling down from the sky through midair, arriving quickly, you, blessed one, with a smile on your unaging face, Asking again, what have I suffered, and why am I calling again? And in, and in my wild heart, what did I most wish to happen to me? Quote, again, who must I persuade back into your harness of love? Sappho, who wrongs you? End quote. For if she please, soon she'll pursue. She doesn't accept gifts, but she'll give. If not loving now, soon she'll love, even against her will. That's the end quote. I'm sorry. I misplaced that. Come to me now again. Release me from this pain. This is back in Sappho's voice. Everything my spirit longs to have fulfilled, fulfill, and you be my ally. ally. So first of all, this is in the first person, right? Um, <laughs> in a sense, right? You know, I beg you, right? Um, so I think that's important, right? We mentioned, you know, the lyric I, right? Um, and then I think the other thing that's really important here is that, you know, this is about unrequited love, but it's clear for if she flees, soon she'll pursue, right? This is Aphrodite talking back to Sappho, right? If she doesn't accept gifts, but she'll give. Um, if not now loving, soon she'll love, even against her will. Right. So this is also, you know, it's about love between women. And Sappho is, again, she clearly names herself here. Right. So, um, yeah, I just think that this this again is, you know, which of homoerotic is the right word because it's you know <laughs> that's what it's not happening, right? Um, you know, right. But right. it's it's, <laughs> it's unrequited love. Yeah. Yeah. Sappho's unrequited love to to another woman. Um, and it's an incredible, it's incredibly beautiful. It's an incredible poem, and it's I, I, what I love when we talk about some of the ancient stuff and we hear this. It's a, you're hearing a voice from at this point now, twenty six hundred years ago, twenty five hundred years ago, and it's as real and as contemporary and as urgent as anybody you know, one of your friends. So it's, it's I love hearing that. I love I love the the way it connects us across millennia, and that's a great point, Sean. And I think you know, um, in our emails earlier, you had had you know asked you know what what makes this something that was you know what, what made this poetry you know something that was popular to her audience of the time, and what makes it popular to people today. And, and I think you know when I thought about that, it's just it is the timelessness of it. Really, it's. You know, this is something that we all, you know, have experienced probably unrequited love at some point or another. And I think anyone who says they haven't is probably lying, right? You know, but mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe they're so or really very lucky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah incredibly lucky. lucky. Exactly. Yeah, there yeah. are some incredibly lucky people out there, right? You know, um, yeah. And so, um, and also sort of going back to sort of the, to tie in the, um, you know, ideas about you know her her pupils or her um beloveds and, and also one of the theories that was developed 
you know, I think in the 19th century, this idea of Sappho as a school teacher, right? Um, and that may not be true, right? But, you know, but, but in some of the texts later, like this, you know, uh, medieval text, you know, we're told that, you know, she had um, companions and friends, Addis, Telesippa, and Megara, and she got her bad name for her impure friendship with the, with them. Her pupils were Anagra of Miletus, Gongila of Colophon, and Unica of Salamis. Um, and Addis is mentioned in another poem, right? So, so one thing we can do as as historians is try and sort of tie these later testimonia or about her biography back to the poems. And this poem is number 15, but I'll read it to you, right? Um, and, and I think it, it kind of also talking about this idea of marriage and women being sent across the sea, you know, in, in this aristocratic circle that Sappho um, was in. And so the first part is just one line. It just says Sardis. And then there's a gap. And then it says, often holding her thoughts here. Uh, you, like a goddess undisguised, but she rejoiced especially in your song. It's a little disjointed because there's some missing parts here. Now she stands out among Lydian women as after sunset. The rose-fingered moon exceeds all stars. Light reaches equally over the brine sea and thick flowering fields. A beautiful dew has poured down. Roses bloom, tender parsley and blossoming honey clover. Pacing far away. She remembers gentle Attis with desire. Perhaps, and then a gap again, consumes her delicate skull, soul. To go there, another gap, this not knowing, another gap, much she sings, another gap in the middle. It's not easy for us to rival the beautiful form of goddesses. And then we've got more lacunae or gaps here, right, you might have. But anyway, and then it, it sort of finishes off with a few glass, but I'll just read it without... Spelling out, and Aphrodite poured nectar, a golden something or other, um, from a golden something or other, with her hands, persuasion, and then the poem breaks off. Um, but, you know, again, to sort of think about this idea, Addis is here mentioned, right? But this is in the third part person, pacing far away, she remembers gentle Addis with desire. So, you know, is she writing about herself in the third person? That's possible, but she doesn't do that in other poems. Or was Addis, you know, is she writing this for a friend um, or for someone right. else? So this right. to sort of kind of give you some of the complications, right, that come up with that. Um, so is it, Addis, is it Addis as in, as in the uh, consort to Kybele and the, the mother god? Is it the similar spelling? It's A-T-T-H-I-S. Oh, okay. Which, and... Uh, yeah, I, I, just thought, I just thought that was interesting because it sounds like Addis, uh, you know, the the, the the great mystery where he is destroyed and then regenerated again to the mother goddess. Uh, I believe it's the Kybele, but uh, so it's it's an interesting that that name is so similar. But um, and there's kind of that sort of like distant longing. Yeah, Addis, the consort of, of Kybele, does not have an H in it. It's A T T I S in English, or and, and in Greek, it's you know uh, the same, right? Um, but there's right. some variations on it. The you know the name could be a, a feminine version of that with the H in mm -hmm. it. That's I possible. I'm, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Um, yeah, but, but it's certainly yeah. A, it certainly has that sort of that distant kind of that longing. So I mean, she's just a really powerfully interesting force, and again, it's just another example of how much we've lost and how many gaps we need to fill in yes, and how nice yeah. it would be if we could just fill in those places and those spots. Oh, for a time machine. Or sort of go really, back to one yeah. of the questions you asked in the beginning. Yeah. I'd love to have a time machine. I always wanted to just check out what Socrates was really up to, but anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, you know, um, but um, but there is a poem, if I can find it here, that um, that that's about Helen of Troy, right? So she also brings in to her writing, um, you know, uh, right elements from Homer, right? And and this is this is one of my particular favorites. It's number four in in um, Sappho's Lyre translated by Diane Rayer, 
Some say an army of horsemen, others say foot soldiers, still others a fleet is the fairest thing on the dark earth. I say it is whatever one loves. Everyone can understand this. Consider that Helen, far surpassing the beauty of mortals, leaving behind the best man of all, sailed away to Troy. She had no memory of her dear child or parents. She was led astray by Cyprus, Cyprus is Aphrodite. And then there's a gap, lightly another gap, reminding me now of Anactoria being gone. I would rather see her lovely step and the radiant sparkle of her face than all the war chariots in Lydia and soldiers battling in shining bronze. So one thing Sappho is known for is she brings in these Homeric tropes, right? You know, and and Helen and others. She's got some other poems where she talks about Hector, right? Helen's father-in-law after she goes to Troy. Um, And so, you know, she conjures up these things from epic poetry, right? But she puts her own kind of personal spin on this. Um, right. That line in there, the fairest thing on dark earth is whatever one loves. It's just an an incredible. Plus, it reminds me of uh, the E.E. Cummings poem, Poela Mia, where where he basically, you know, she compares these things and says, you know, I'd rather see this thing than any of these great things you can think of. And in Poela Mia, he says, Harun Omar and Master Hafiz, keep your dead beautiful ladies. Mine is a little lovelier than any of your ladies were. So yeah. it's just this, mm. this idea that you, all these great poets could say whatever, but who I love is the fairest on earth, so to speak, to use Sappho's what, phrase. What brings me the greatest joy is not all these wonderful things. It's the face of the one I love, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, yeah. amazing and so that's incredible. It's also, I think, in a way, you know, uh, uh, this is what's probably changing, right? That, you know, some of the earlier poetry has really been about these armies of horsemen and foot soldiers and, you know, fleets and, you know, war, right? And, you know, so she's just really becoming much more personal and kind of here she's telling you, right? You know, this is what I think. And um, and it's really giving you a woman's perspective, right? Which is, you know, for the right. first time that, that we see. And again, as Dawn said, you know, we may have, there may have been others, right, earlier um, right. that we don't have, but, right. you know, she survived because they thought she was the best. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Walter. I, would think, I just, I think that might be a good place for us yeah, to- Yeah, good place to, to, to wrap it up, with, absolutely. With, with Safa, with such a beautiful lines. Well, thank you both. That was fun. I really enjoyed talking about Sappho, so. Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Oh, and such th- a wonderful thank you, Donna. Thank you, Donna, as always. Absolutely. And thank you, Sean. And thank and, our listeners. Uh, looking forward to the next time we uh, we talk to Walter about whatever that may be. We'll we'll oh, figure we something, have something out. Planned. I think we have exactly. something planned. So, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. Amazon's and Wonder Woman, maybe. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> maybe so. so. Yeah. Maybe so. <laughs> All right. This has been the 34 Cersei Salon. Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you for listening. And I'm Don Sam Alden. Thank you for being here. Take care and blessed be.